my name's Chris, Chris Kandaya. Uh, yeah, I uh, founded a charity called Home for Good, uh, which is trying to inspire people to contend for vulnerable children through fostering, adoption, and speaking up towards them, towards the, for them, towards the government. Uh, I have a sort of family, is that the question you asked? Yeah. Yeah, I have a sort of family. Uh, so I have a wife and six children. Uh, three of them are our birth kids, and three of them are either fostered or adopted. And I didn't bring any of them here with me, so I'll just have to tell you they're real. And uh, you have to believe me. So you, you mentioned the charity there, so that's, I'm guessing, your day job. So what does that entail, and I mean, why did you start doing that work? Oh, great question. Uh, so I'd love to say it was just my day job. I think it's evening now, so I'm doing my job right now. Um, I'd love to say it fits neatly within nine to five, five yeah. days a week. Uh, it's, a, it's a passion. It's a calling. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about it as we go through this evening. Uh, but our experience was we became foster parents, and we realized how many children in the care system don't have ongoing, loving families. And as we will see tonight... Uh, we think it's a Christian conviction, a calling on anyone uh, who has a Christian faith to contend for vulnerable people. And actually, that's, that's part of the DNA of what it means to be a Christian. And I'm hoping there are people here that are wanting to explore the Christian faith. And so as I talk about this, I want you to hear, this isn't just an interesting thing for certain types of Christians. This is something that's core to what it means to be a Christian in the first place. Um, and given that there are probably some people here tonight that wouldn't yet call themselves Christians... If you give them one piece of advice or say one thing to them now before the next 15, 20 minutes of you speaking, what, sure. what would you say to them? Uh, I would say that you owe it to yourself to investigate the Christian faith. If it is not true, great, that's something that you can kind of get out of your life and get on and move on. Uh, but if it is true, as I'm convinced, uh, then it changes everything about why we're here. Uh, not just about what you do on a Sunday or what you do with 10% of your time or money but it changes the whole direction of your life in a really positive way. So uh, have a look. And I know the church here runs some courses uh, where you can find out more in a really relaxed environment, ask your big questions, and uh, they'll be very, very happy to see you there. Great. Chris, thank you so much for coming to speak to us. I'm going to hand over to you. Thank you. So this is going to be uh, an interactive service. You are going to need uh, some help. You're going to need to chat to your friends. And uh, we're going to try and bond a little bit. Uh, before I ask a really, really uh, difficult and awkward question. Let me uh, try and connect. Uh, so my mother was born in India, and she was born into a mixed-race family. Her mum was from India, but her dad, as you probably guessed, was from Ireland. And so I'm a bit Irish. Are there any Irish people here? Okay, don't be ashamed. It's great. I'm proud. I'm one of the <laughs> proudest, brownest uh, Irish people you might know. <laughs> And um, here's the thing, my, my grandfather was an amazing shot. Um, whenever there was a man-eating tiger in the village, they would literally call him in uh, to take it out. And, um, you know, he was not a trophy hunter, he was protecting the village. And when there was a, um, a war, Second World War broke out, my grandfather signed up and was a rifleman. And he was deployed into North Africa... And he was uh, providing covering fire for his troops when they got ambushed. And sadly, there was no one to provide covering fire for him when he needed to make an exit. And so he died. He died in the desert uh, near El Alamein and uh, was, you know, uh, honoured. He was given a military cross, uh, which at the time I think was the second highest uh, cross that you could get, second highest award that you could get in the army. 
Now, the bad news for my mum and her two sisters uh, was that people weren't that excited that they were in the world because they were mixed-race children. And so as soon as it was possible, as they found out my grandfather was uh, dead, my mum and her two sisters were put into three separate orphanages around India. And you go, hold on, what are kids doing in an orphanage? They have a living mother. Why are they in orphanages? And uh, that's a really great question. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but 80 to 90% of the children living in orphanages around the world, and there's about 8 million according to UNICEF and Save the Children, 80 to 90% of children living in orphanages actually have living parents. Most children in orphanages are not orphans, uh, they're economic orphans. So it's poverty that's the driver for people to go uh, into orphanages. And you might think, oh, well, it would be different in Christian orphanages. No, the stats are still the same. Christian orphanages are full of children who have living parents. And just think about it. What's the chances that a child has lost both their mother and their father and their aunties and their uncles and their grandparents? They've all been wiped out and there's no possible family member that could look after them. So, quick pitch to you. If you are thinking of going to volunteer in an orphanage somewhere around the world, please reconsider. Those children don't need to be in orphanages. They need to go home and live with their families under the right transition. And uh, if you're thinking, oh my goodness, I've been to volunteer in an orphanage, uh, that's okay. You know, we, we all do things that uh, on reflection we might consider differently. And if you've got a bone to pick with me about this, I would love to talk to you afterwards. But I'm trying to start a movement, and actually not just me. Have you heard of J.K. Rowling? Is that a name that rings a bell with you? She runs a charity called Lumos. You can Google it uh, in the talk. And weirdly, for a woman who thinks foster care, at least in her books, is not a great idea because the Dursleys keep Harry Potter under the stairs and Harry Potter finds salvation where, in an institutional school, she is now on a massive campaign to change the world's mind on orphanages. So uh, the, on the second meeting I ever have with J.K. Rowling, the first meeting will be, thank you for helping my daughter learn to read. The second meeting will be, what were you doing? Why did you run something that was positive about institutional care and now you're running something that's trying to stop institutional care? Anyway, long story. Happy to talk to you about it at the end. Anyway, so my mother grows up in this orphanage, ages out of the orphanage, and then is discovered by an auntie and brought to the UK. When she comes to the UK, she is the brownest person anyone's ever seen in Brighton. And uh, she trains to be a nurse and uh, it wasn't great at that time, training to be a nurse. Um, people used to say, I'm amazed that you from India are able to speak English. I thought people were very backward in India, and it's amazing that you could speak English. Or when you'll sit down and have a meal, they say, I am amazed that you know how to use a knife and a fork. You know, Mowgli doesn't use a knife and a fork in Jungle Book. So how is it that you were able to? People would throw bananas at her in the street. It was awful. But my mother launched a one-woman resistance campaign. And it happened every Friday night. She would open her home and welcome anyone who didn't feel like they fit in to her house. And she'd cook up a massive vat of rice and curry and everyone found welcome there. And my mother taught me the power of transformative hospitality. And that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about tonight. Children don't need to be in orphanages. They need to be finding hospitality in loving families, either their birth families or alternative families. And that same issue is here right now in the UK. Children need to find families. And right now across the West Midlands, 820 more families are needed to look after the vulnerable children that are in our care system. 
And so I'm in a, I'm in a, a movement to try and change that. And you might be thinking, oh, Chris, this doesn't sound like it's a talk for me because uh, I'm not in a position where I can be a foster parent or an adoptive parent. That's okay. I want to sow a seed in your mind for later in your life when you might be able to be part of this movement. And I want to show you why it's absolutely essential to the Christian faith that caring for vulnerable people is a top priority. So that's where we're going to go. But first, I need to do something a little bit divisive. My friends in the booth are going to show you a picture. And you can show it now. Yes. Okay, just talk to your neighbour for a second and ask them what colour is the shoe. Have a little go. Okay. Someone on this side, tell me the colour of the shoe. Pink. Who sees pink? Who doesn't see pink? What do you see if you don't see pink? Blue and grey, possibly teal, some would say. Green, grey. Okay. Uh, you ready for another one? Let's do another one. What colour's the dress? <laughs> Hands up if you see white and gold. White and gold. Nice. Hands up if you see blue and black. Nice. But it's a weird phenomenon, isn't it? Why do some of us see white and gold, some of us see blue and black? Um, there's probably some medics here. I know there's a lot of medics in the church. Uh, so you might be able to give me another spin on this. Uh, the best ideas I've heard, one is your brain is trying to do a colour balance. It's trying to work out where natural light is, and then it works out all the other colours depending on what you think natural light is. The weird thing is, there is no natural light in this picture. It just looks like there is. That's why your brain's uh, fooled. The other explanation, and I was told this by an optician, uh, she said it's to do with the different distribution of of rods and cones in your retina. And we all have a slightly different uh, distribution, so that's why you see it. I don't know if you've got a better answer than me. I'm happy to hear it. But for me, this is a really interesting little parable of what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian changes the way you see everything. It doesn't just change a few things in your life, what you do on Sundays, what you do with 10% of your time and money. It changes the way you see everything. Everything is different because what you understand about who God is and how he relates to us. Suddenly... Some of the things that you used to think were important or used to kind of capture your imagination are different now because the Christian faith has become the new normal, the new white balance, the new um, zero for your, uh, or baseline for your life to be lived through. But being a Christian is supposed to change the way that you see everything and that isn't always the case for every Christian. I'm going to show you another picture in a second and I'm going to tell you what most people see when they see this picture And then I want you to guess, if you're not uh, someone who's familiar with the Christian faith, what do you think God sees when he looks at this picture? All right? You up for this? You look a bit worried. It's not a scary picture. No trigger alerts needed. Uh, You won't need a little kind of time to yourself before you see this picture. It's all going to be okay. Uh, But let's see it. Let's see it. Okay. This is Robert. Not Robert's real name. Uh, Robert is currently in foster care. In fact, he's been in foster care for most of his life. Robert is five years old. And if you had been approved to be an adopter, you would be able to see Robert's face. And you would be able to read a little profile about Robert's life. And in that profile, it would say, uh, Robert has been waiting in foster care for about three years to find an adoptive family. 
and Robert is loved by his teacher at school, but because Robert has speech delay and he can't quite communicate in the way that he wants to, he sometimes has difficult to manage behaviour. And that kind of works out in a difficult way in the classroom. Now, so far, and there's probably been, I don't know, a few thousand people that have looked at Robert's profile, everyone has so far read that and come to some difficult conclusions about Robert. They've decided Robert is not the right child for them. That's why no one's adopted him. They probably think, you know, if he's trouble at five, well, maybe he'll be real trouble at 15. If he's got difficult to manage behaviours now, maybe he's too broken to be adopted. Do you see where this is going? Most people have looked at Robert and have decided that Robert is unadoptable. Now the sad thing is, if Robert grows up in foster care, never ever finds a permanent loving family, well, statistically his life chances of being normal are quite limited. Kids that age out of foster care make up about 1% of the population, but about 25% of the homeless population. If you've ever spent time helping the homeless, uh, you'll know a lot of them have a care history. Uh, Kids that age out of foster care make up about 50%, give or take, of our prison population. And in some areas, we're talking about this this morning, um, of people who have been sexually exploited, uh, in some areas, 70% of sex workers in the UK have a care history. So you see what happens? The things that people are saying about Robert now kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy because no one gets involved to welcome him into their homes and their families. And he ages out and life doesn't work out great. So you've heard what most people think. Problem child, someone else's problem, unadoptable, difficult, difficult to manage. Now what do you think God sees? when he looks at Robert. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you've read lots of the Bible and so this is called a quick theology review, okay? Uh, Maybe you're new to faith and you're not really quite sure. We've sung a few songs about God. Maybe you can extrapolate from what you've heard tonight, even just in the songs, what you would guess that God sees when he looks at Robert. Are you up for this? Uh, This is going to involve talking to a neighbour. And uh, when I did this uh, in another city, beginning with B, Bristol, They did awesome at this. So there's no shame if Birmingham isn't quite up to Bristol standards. But give it your best shot. Have a little go. Chat to your neighbour. See if you can think of three things you would guess that God sees when he looks at Robert. Have a little go. And we'll talk again in about 90 seconds. So be quick. Okay. 90 seconds. It's it's speed theology, if you're not familiar with this. Uh, I think it's a little bit like speed dating, but without the embarrassment. Hopefully. Let's see how we we get on. Uh, Okay, Birmingham, someone on this side of the room, give me one thing that God might see when he looks at Robert. Anyone? Oh, wow. Brilliant. Start in there with an awesome answer. Round of applause for that answer. It was excellent. Okay, so one fundamental understanding of the Christian faith is that every single human being is made in the image of God. And therefore, they have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. Let me give you an illustration. Look, I've got a phone here. It's a Samsung phone. And, uh, oh, I don't have any Samsung friends. Are you all Apple clones? Is 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 that it? I am not a sheep. I am my own person. I will not be restricted into the little Apple ecosystem. I resist. And on my phone, I might have a few thousand pictures of my family. 
And at the end of the service, if you've got a few minutes, we could chat and I might show you a picture of my family. Now imagine, I know this is Birmingham, it's unlikely to happen, but imagine one of you were to see a picture of my family and you were to spit on a picture of my family. At one level, it doesn't matter. This is a Samsung phone. It's waterproof. And even if you have toxic saliva that can get into the inner workings of my Samsung phone, other phone brands are available, this is an Android phone, which means all my photos are immediately backed up onto the Google Cloud. Thank you, Google Cloud. Other servers are available. So you can't do any damage to my photos. It's all right. And yet, symbolically, you spit on a picture of my family. What does that say about how you feel about my family? And how am I going to feel about what you're saying about how you feel about my family? You see, for a Christian, what you do or don't do to another person made in the image of God is an indicator of how you feel about God. That's why the two greatest commandments in the Christian faith are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and to love your neighbour as yourself. What you do towards another human being is an indicator of how you feel about the God that they image. It's a profound answer that Robert has made in the image of God. Keep going. You've had an awesome answer. Two more. Well, three more to beat Bristol. Uh, someone on this side of the room, give me something else. What else do you see? Or what does God see when he looks at Robert? Yeah, yeah, yeah. God sees someone. Actually, we might just put it more simply. God sees someone that he loves. Is that right? Is that controversial? I don't know, one of the most famous Bible verses is John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved middle-class white people. Is that how it goes? No? For God so loved the world. Every single person on this planet is loved by God. Is that, is that a deep and challenging application of that verse for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not die but have eternal life every single person irrespective of their age their history their, whether they're in care or not in care whether they're able-bodied or disabled whether they're black or white rich or poor gay or straight Muslim or Christian God has love towards the world now it doesn't mean everyone's returned God's love with love for God. That's not what we're saying. But God has love towards the world. There isn't a single person on this planet that God doesn't have love towards. You with me? Profound. Good. Uh, two. I think you need two more to beat Bristol. Have you got any more? What else does God see when he looks at Robert? Yeah. His child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, God created Everybody, okay? Uh, whether directly or indirectly, we can get into the details of that if you'd like to. If you're not quite sure how children come into the world, apparently Neil Powell does an amazing seminar on that with diagrams. <laughs> That's all up to him. That's beyond my pay grade. We believe, Christians believe, that there is no one here on this planet by accident. God wanted every single one of us to be here. We're not just a cosmic accident. We were designed. We were longed for. We were made by God. And therefore, again, every single human being has 
value, dignity and worth. In fact, my daughter, she's 18 and in her bedroom she has a mirror. Apparently that's a teenage thing, mirrors and bedrooms. And uh, underneath her mirror there is a Bible verse. It's from Psalm 139. And it just, we didn't even quote the whole thing, it just says, fearfully and wonderfully made. Why do I want my daughter to know that every time she looks in the mirror? I want her to know that. I actually want my boys to know that just as much. Because there's a lot of pressure, isn't there? Magazines and vloggers telling us how we've got to look in order to be valuable. No. Every single human being, fearfully and wonderfully made. That's, that's important. That's something to hold on to, isn't it? Okay, I think that's three. One more to beat Bristol. You got one. God sees himself. Yeah, if we're made in the image of God, God sees something of himself in Robert. Brilliant. All right, there's one other way you could have answered that. Actually, there's probably ten other ways, but I'm going to try and help you. And I need to give you a trigger alert about the Bible passage we're going to look at tonight. Um, You've heard it read already, and it may already have triggered you. This Bible passage is probably one of the most controversial. Uh, If you're exploring the Christian faith, let's do the hard stuff first. Okay, let's look at the controversial passage first, and uh, you can look at the easy stuff uh, in the kind of discussion groups that run uh, off the back of this uh, service. Uh, This passage annoys Christians on kind of different ends of the spectrum. Uh, Some Christians might describe themselves as conservative. This one annoys them a little bit, and some Christians describe themselves as progressive. This kind of passage annoys them a little bit too. The good news for me is I didn't come up with it, I didn't write it, uh, don't shoot the messenger. Uh, if you don't like this bit of the Bible, we kind of got to take it up with Jesus. So I make no apologies for him. He says what he wants. Could you stick the Bible passage up? And I'll just remind you of what we had read. Uh, if you want to follow along in the Bible, it's Matthew chapter 25. And you may uh, want to follow along again. It's page 994 in the church Bible. And uh, if I just read the, let me just read the second half because you've had it. Um, read to you. Uh, Then, sorry, verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and he gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and he gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Can you see why that passage might trigger people on different ends of the spectrum? Let's deal with one of them first. That last line, Jesus is talking about eternal punishment. The shorthand version of that is hell. Normally, the only people that talk about hell, um, I don't know if you've met them, they kind of carry these crazy big billboards. 
and uh, they walk around town looking really angry, uh, normally saying something like, the end of the world is nigh. I don't know why they speak in uh, like a language from Shakespeare, but that's what they do. Uh, there's a guy like that in Oxford Circus, if you've ever been there. It's, it's a clever place to be because uh, there's a brilliant four-way junction, which means there's normally about 400 people waiting to cross the road. And while they're all waiting, he's got this kind of, I don't know whether it's nuclear-powered because it's never plugged in, he's got this megaphone and a battery pack, and he's shouting at everybody, turn or burn, repent or perish. And he seems to get excited talking about hell. It seems to make him happy. Now, I don't get that tonality about Jesus. Jesus is the most loving person the world has ever seen, and yet he dares to talk about punishment and hell. Why does he do that? Is he he gloating? Is he trying to scare people into the kingdom? That's not the sense I get of him. Let me give you an illustration. In my house... I told you there are six children that normally live there. Uh, they, uh, some are at university, but when everyone's home, uh, we have years, uh, 20 years old is the oldest one, and seven is the youngest one, and sometimes we have an emergency baby. That's different from an emergency biscuit. That's something that you eat in an emergency. An emergency baby is when social services have got a baby that's just turned up and they've got nowhere for him to go, and he comes to us. And so we have some pretty strict rules in our house. One of our rules is... Do not lick the plug sockets, okay? That's quite an important rule, and I tell that to my children. Do I tell that to my children because I hate them and I'm trying to suppress them and make them feel bad? No, I tell that to my children because I love them, and I love them, and therefore I want to warn them of danger. And that's what I get from Jesus. Jesus doesn't seem to gloat or enjoy talking about punishment. He's just trying to say there are consequences, and therefore he's trying to warn us because he loves us. So... People on the more progressive end of the Christian faith find Jesus' talk here quite difficult. I'm pretty old school. I think Jesus knows what he's talking about and I don't need to edit him. In fact, I don't think you can be a Christian and edit Jesus because that's not being a Christian. That's you being in charge and Jesus being your little lucky boy. I think Jesus is in charge and I've got to do what he says even if I don't like it. So there he is. He's, He's controversial towards progressives. But for some within the church, what you might describe the conservative end, they get a little bit worried about this passage because it sounds like Jesus is saying that in order to be welcomed into God's family, in order to inherit eternal life, you've got to do enough good deeds. You've got to go and help enough people. You've got to go and feed the hungry. You've got to go and give water to the thirsty. You've got to go and visit the stranger. You've got to help people in prison. You've got to welcome the stranger into your home. That sounds like you've got to do enough good things in order to be acceptable to God. And again, I'm not convinced that's a correct reading of this passage. There is a connection in the Bible between good works and being in the family of God. But, did any one of you here do A-level statistics? Does that, does that sound like a familiar A-level to you? Hands up if you did a Be Be proud. I got a zero in an A-level statistics exam, which is statistically improbable, and I thought they should have given me a good grade, (laughs) but I got zero. The only thing I can remember from my A-level statistics is you must not confuse causation and correlation. Does that ring any bells? In case you don't know what I'm talking about. I drive a lot around the country, and as I drive, I sometimes come across wind turbines. Have you seen those wind turbines? 
They look a little bit like Mercedes signs. I don't know how Mercedes got the deal to brand all the wind turbines, but it was a good deal because everywhere I go, I'm thinking, I need a Mercedes. Have you noticed that the faster that those wind turbines spin, the windier it gets? Have you noticed that? All this bad weather we've had recently, easiest thing we could do is just turn the fans off. Do not confuse correlation and causation. There is a correlation between wind speed and turbine speed, but if you get the causation wrong, you say something stupid. Christians do not believe we are welcomed into God's family because we've done enough good things. If that was possible, Jesus did not need to die on the cross. You may know the most central symbol of the Christian faith is a cross, a crucifix, which may seem bizarre to you that Christians celebrate the way that Jesus was executed. They do that because Christians believe when Jesus died on the cross, he was carrying the sins of the world. He was being punished for the wrong things we've done. He offered himself as a sacrifice in order that you and I could be forgiven for our sins and welcomed into the family of God. If we could have got to God just by doing good things, there was no need for Jesus to die on the cross. So what is Jesus saying here in this parable? There is a correlation between good deeds and being in the family of God. But it's indicative. It shows that you have received grace from God and love from God and mercy from God if you're willing to pass it on to other people. If there's no desire in you to help others, if there's no desire for you to love your neighbor who is made in the image of God, maybe you don't know God. Jesus is saying, having received all this grace and kindness and mercy from God, you will want to pass that on to others. And therefore, when you see someone in need, you don't just see the need. You don't just see them as a problem or a burden. You see them as someone made in the image of God. You see them as Jesus coming to you as an opportunity to show love and mercy to him. Do you see why I might say that hospitality and kindness and compassion are essential to the Christian faith? This passage is the clearest, I think, that Jesus speaks about Judgment Day. The first half, it's clear. You know, and, um, the Son of Man will come on his throne and he will judge. He will separate the sheep from the goats. What will be the deciding factor? Will it be whether you turned up at church? Will it be whether you signed a doctrinal statement? Will it be that you went to enough Bible studies? No. The deciding factor is the grace that God has passed into your life. Is there any evidence that it's being passed on to others? That's where he's going here. So, chances are you are someone who cares about other people. The chances are you're someone who recognizes that vulnerable people need love and support and care. And actually, I think Christianity provides the best framework to understand where that instinct has come from. It's countercultural to care for vulnerable people. It, it goes against uh, the prevailing idea that the strong should survive and the weak should die out, that the will to power is the most important thing, survival of the fittest. This idea that actually you demonstrate that you're in the family of God by showing love to people that everybody else thinks are problematic and someone else's problem, that's the heart of the Christian faith. 
And so tonight, I guess I want to give you a couple of opportunities. One might be you are exploring the Christian faith. Brilliant. I'd love to encourage you to keep on exploring. That there's more to this thing than just uh, great ideas and, and comforting thoughts. There's actually a call to be part of something that God is doing in the world. A, a call that is more than just what you do on Sundays. A call that might reshape some of your ambitions and desires for your life because you want to serve God and you want to serve what he's doing in the world. We'd love to help you find out more and Don's going to tell you about that course. But maybe you're here and actually you know you're a Christian. And you think, hold on, I'm not sure some of my ambitions for my life actually cohere with what Jesus says is most important. As you've planned out the next few years of your life, maybe when you finish university, maybe when you get a job, what is at the essence of your decision making? Are you genuinely seeking to please God or are you just seeking to please yourself or your parents or your culture's expectations of you? The Bible says that we're supposed to seek God first, seek his kingdom first. And I think you can see from this parable, and if you read the rest of the New Testament, you'd see it too. Caring for the vulnerable has to be a priority. Now you can do that personally, in your private time, in your leisure time, that's great. You could do it in how you serve in a church. You could do it practically with your neighbours. But actually I think God's got a call on what you're going to give most of your time and energy to, your, your vocation, your job, your career. And if there's no connection between the work you're planning to do and helping vulnerable people, I just want to ask you, are you sure that's God's call on your life? That doesn't mean everyone's called to be a social worker, although social workers are amazing. Maybe you feel called to be involved in economics. Well, will that call be about making wealthier nations more wealthy, or will it be about helping impoverished people to find a foot on the ladder? Maybe you feel called into politics. Well, will that be about you progressing and becoming powerful, or will it be about using your power and influence to help the most vulnerable? Uh, maybe you're planning to be a doctor. Brilliant. Well, um, are you going to use your medical skills to make people feel a little bit more beautiful about themselves, or will you help people who otherwise wouldn't get to live? What, how will those decisions be made? This passage, for me, challenges some of my ambitions, some of my desires for what my family's going to look like, what my career's going to look like. And I guess, again, if you're someone exploring the Christian faith, you need to hear, this is not something that changes, something you do on a Sunday, something you do with 10% of your time or money. It redirects the whole of your life. In fact, the old-fashioned word for that is repentance. That we used to be living for ourselves and our own desires, but now, thanks to God's grace, we're turned around and we're saying, I want to live for God. I want to live for others. I want to live for my neighbor. I want to live for the poor. Suddenly that change signals to the world that you're not the king anymore, that Jesus is going to be the king. And he's the king of peace and love and compassion. And our desires, our decisions begin to signal that to the world, that there's another way to live. There's another set of values to live for. And that's the most exciting journey I think you could possibly embark on. I need to draw our time uh, together to a close. And I guess let me give you those two opportunities again. Maybe you're here tonight and you're thinking, I hadn't realized this is what the Christian faith is about. We'd love for you to explore a bit more. Dom can tell you about that course. But maybe you are a Christian and you're thinking, Lord, 
I want to be available for what you want me to do. And even tonight, maybe just in a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer to help you ask God to lead your next steps into his purposes. So let's pray together, shall we? Father God, thank you for people that are here tonight that are exploring what the Christian faith is all about. And Lord, anything that I've said that is helpful or useful to them, Lord, would you just help them to know the truth of it? And would you intrigue them further, maybe to join a course or to ask a few questions at the end of the service? And Lord, for the rest of us who know where we stand with you, Lord, would you allow us to hear the challenge of Jesus? That you are the God who cares for the vulnerable, the lonely, and the lost. And if we are to love you, we are to love them. Lord, forgive us when we've walked past those that we know are in need. When we've turned our backs on friends and and, uh, fellow students at university or family members that we know are struggling. Lord, forgive us when we've set our own direction for our lives and we've made our own egos and selfish ambition the defining mark of where we're going. Lord, instead, would you renew our minds and hearts that we would show your love and mercy to a world in need. In Jesus' name we pray.